This morning as we, we gather together and take a look at God's Word, I have uh, one primary objective in mind. That as each of us go away from here this morning, that we would have a greater understanding and a greater appreciation for and a deep felt gratitude for how God in his providence divinely and sovereignly orchestrated the events of history to adopt you and me into his family in Christ. So that as we leave here this morning, we would go away from here in, in worship and awe and wonder at the sovereign plan of God that he orchestrated throughout history to take us a people who were under the law of God and under the wrath of God and to redeem us from under that wrath, to place us in Christ and to adopt us into his family. This is our our goal this morning. I know over the past number of weeks we've been spending a lot of time looking at various Christmas passages in the Bible. And most of the time when we think of passages that deal with Christ coming to earth, we think about the Gospel of Luke Maybe the Gospel of Matthew, some of us might have our thoughts turned to the Old Testament, maybe to Isaiah 9 or Micah 5. Not often, though, do we think of the book of Galatians as one that speaks of the coming of Christ at Christmas. And at Christmas time, many of us receive letters from friends in the mail. We receive letters, we receive postcards, and this book of Galatians is actually a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of churches in Galatia. And I know when we receive Christmas letters, I know they often talk about seasons greetings or bring you good news of of great joy, of good tidings. But the Apostle Paul, when he writes the letter to the Galatians, is not in a very festive mood. As a matter of fact, he's deeply disturbed. And the reason that he is deeply disturbed is because the gospel of Jesus Christ has come under attack in Galatia. Paul had come to these Galatians. He had preached the true gospel of Jesus Christ. He had told them that salvation is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this gospel came under attack in Galatia, Paul was very conscious of the fact that it is the gospel and only the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. He was very conscious of the fact that the word of the cross may be foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when the gospel is attacked, when the gospel is undermined, so is the glory of God, and so is the only hope of salvation for mankind. And so this is a very, very serious thing. And as in Paul's day, so in our day, oftentimes the attacks on the gospel come from not without the church, but from within. And even today, we see men writing books, like a book called Love Wins that came on the market not that long ago, proclaiming that The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that somehow, in some way, God is going to save every single man who ever lived throughout history. 
This book claims that in this life, some people will be saved, but in the end, sometime in another life, God is going to call all men to himself and all men will be saved. Which is a direct contradiction to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that only through belief in Jesus Christ and in faith in Jesus Christ in this life, if only when people repent and believe the gospel, that they will be saved. And if they do not, their rejection of Christ will carry on for all eternity. And they will end up apart from Christ under the wrath of God forever. There are others who preach what many call the prosperity gospel. They say that Christ came for this purpose, to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. And this was the primary purpose that Christ came, so that you may prosper in this life, that you may have your best life now. Where Jesus himself said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Where Jesus himself said that the Spirit was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, but that our inheritance was not yet. The fullness of our inheritance was going to come later. We have an inheritance that can never perish, spare, or perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us, and that our best life is not in this life, but in the life to come. That the gospel gives us hope in this life, and it does transform our lives for this life, but the hope of the gospel is not only in this life, but for the life to come. And so when the gospel is under attack, we too have to, like Paul, stand strong, and we have to refute the errors that come and those who seek to undermine the gospel. And Paul does that very sternly. If you turn to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, we're going to spend a little bit of time just taking a look at some of the things that move us towards the passage that we're going to look at today. In Galatians 1 verse 6, listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he confronts this error. He says to the Galatians, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And Paul goes on from there, and starting in chapter 1, verse 11, and we won't get into detail here because we have to move on, but he begins to show how the gospel that he received was given to him by revelation through Jesus Christ as he met him on the road to Damascus and confronted him. And Paul received a revelation from Christ, received the gospel from Christ. That gospel that he received from Jesus Christ himself was the one that he had preached to the Galatians. In chapter 2, he begins to show how the gospel that he preached was also the same gospel that Peter preached and that James preached, that the other apostles who had received it from Christ while he was on earth, it was exactly the same gospel. He goes on from there in chapter 3 to show how that same gospel was the gospel that had saved the Galatians. That the Galatians had received the Spirit of God not by obedience to the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then finally, if that's not enough, in chapter 3, verse 6, he begins to explain to the Galatians how that same gospel was not only for the New Testament believers, but was proclaimed long ago to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he says this, starting in chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so this morning, we need to be clear. No person in the entire history of mankind has ever been saved in any other way than by grace through faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read all of the great men of faith throughout the Old Testament. It talks about how Abel, by faith, offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. How Enoch, by faith, did the things that he did. How Moses, by faith. How Abraham, by faith. And it was always by faith. Now, this faith obviously wasn't in its fullest form as we have seen today, as Christ had come to earth and revealed himself fully. They had faith in the promised one who was to come, in this offspring that had been promised to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. They had faith in what God had called the, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. There was one who was to come from the woman who would make things right where men had made them wrong. And Old Testament believers, just like New Testament believers, put their faith in the promised one to come, in the promised one of God. And so it was always by grace through faith. So what was being distorted in Galatia? How was the gospel being compromised? If you read through the book of Galatians, you will find a couple of things. One, Paul talks a lot about circumcision. And the Galatian believers had been told by someone other than Paul, other teachers, false teachers, who had come from a Jewish background, that they have to be saved, yes, by the gospel of Jesus Christ, by faith in him, but also that they had to add to that circumcision. That in order to be saved, you must be circumcised. Also, we find in Galatians 4, in, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul talks about how these believers had gone back to the weak principles of the world, observing days and months and seasons and years. Now, what he's speaking about there is days, the Sabbath day. These people had gone back to observing the Sabbath day. Months. You might look at those as the new moon festivals that were to happen. In seasons and years, things like Passover and Pentecost and other yearly festivals, these people had been told that, yes, you could be saved by grace through Jesus Christ plus circumcision, plus other works of the ceremonial and religious law. And Paul was here to refute that abruptly and totally. But the question we have to ask ourselves, and I believe that the question that these believers were asking, well, if, if Moses, who was a believer in the Old Testament, if David, if Isaiah, if Elijah, and the 7,000 others at Elijah's time who had not bowed the knee to Baal, had to observe these ceremonial practices and still had to be circumcised after they were believers, what is the purpose of this law in God's sovereign plan of salvation, if it wasn't to be observed in order to be saved, what was the point? And I think if we look in Galatians 3 and verse 24, we begin to see something of what God was doing as he instituted the law in the Old Testament, and particularly the religious law 
the ceremonial law. In chapter 3, verse 24, it says this. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. The apostle uses this word, the law was our guardian. And in the text that we are going to look, out, look at today, in Galatians 4, starting at verse 1, the apostle uses an illustration to try to help us to understand the purpose of the law in the life of the believers of the Old Testament and in God's purpose even today. And so what he does is he starts off this way. He says, I mean, in verse, chapter 4, verse 1, he gives an illustration trying to help us understand this. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. Notice the word guardians and managers. And so he says that there was a child who was an heir. Back in those days, wealthy people who had an estate, who had something to pass along as an inheritance to their children, oftentimes, when their children were born, would set guardians and managers over those children. So even though the young child was the heir of the whole estate, even though one day he would be lord over the estate and he would be able to make all of the decisions and call all of the shots and have total freedom to deal with the inheritance that his father would give him, when he was born, he was not ready to handle this. He was too little. He was not ready to take up his responsibility as heir of the estate. He couldn't make his own decisions, spend his own money, decide how to use his own time. For he must grow up and mature. He must be schooled, he must be taught, and prepared to take up his full right and responsibility as a son. Thus, the need for guardians and managers. Now, the word manager, I believe, speaks to someone who was to govern over the property and possessions that this young man would inherit. We see in Luke chapter 16 where Jesus talks about the dishonest manager. And there was a dishonest manager who mishandled the affairs of his master and was going to be let go. And before he was let go, he quickly went to some of the people who owed his master money and said, well, how much do you owe the master? And if you remember the story, he said, oh, so much. And he says, well, cut that in half. And to another, he said, oh, cut that into a third. This man in that parable was the one who looked after the, man the, uh, the master's property he was the one who looked after his financial affairs, his receipts, his accounts receivable. And so the managers were to look after this young man's estate until he could take care of it himself. But then we come to this word guardian. It's the same word that Paul has used to speak of the law. That the law was a guardian over us until Christ came. And this word guardian doesn't deal with the man's possessions, but deals with his person. So the guardian was to be set over the person. And so this young man, as he grew up, had this guardian as a constant companion. The guardian would take him to school. The guardian would teach him life lessons. The guardian would tutor him. He would educate him. He would work with him until the day when he was ready to take over the inheritance. And so he was being prepared by this guardian. But this wasn't to be a lasting state. The guardian wasn't there forever. The guardians and managers had a role to play. That role had a specific time and function, but there was a day when that role would be fulfilled and would be finished. And that is what Paul says at the end of verse 2. 
He's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So he didn't get to decide the day when the guardians and managers would be put aside when he was ready. No, the date was set sovereignly by his father. In ancient times, young men didn't come into adulthood kind of haphazardly like we do today, and and we don't really know exactly when that day and time happens. Back then, the Jews, for instance, would have a young man come into the full rights of an adult at age 12. And he would go through different ceremonies and rituals and things that would happen when he became age 12 and he was assumed then to be an adult. The Greeks did the same thing, did some different rituals and, 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 and things, but at the age of 18. And the Romans had not quite fixed the date, but it was sometime between the age of 14 and 17. And it was that child's father that got to decide when that date was that his guardianship would be over and that he would receive full rights as sons. And this is what the apostle is doing here with this illustration. So he's showing us a picture of what the law was meant to do as a guardian in our lives. And then he comes to the application in verse 3. Notice the words, in the same way. So here's the illustration. This is what was happening here. But in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Now, out of all of the parts of the text as I studied it in the last couple of weeks that gave me trouble, it was the end of this verse, we're enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What exactly does that mean? And I think we can be helped in that a little bit if we look at verse 9 that comes later. In verse 9 and 10 it says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? And then he says this, you observe days and months and seasons and years. These were, again, the religious ceremonies, part of the Mosaic law, the days and months and seasons, the Sabbaths, the Pentecost, the festivals, the feasts, and so I believe that these elementary principles of the world are basically the, what we would call the ABCs of external religion. That under the law, God had taken the law of God and he had done a couple of things with it. Number one, he had placed the law of God in men's minds. Men had a conscience. God had given them a conscience so that they could understand what was right and what was wrong. There is not a single man who, or woman who has ever lived that does not have this placed within them by God, according to Romans 2.15. So God has given man a conscience so that when man strayed away from the truth of God and the truth of his law, man would understand that he was guilty. Man would understand that there was something wrong. A man in his guilt would seek peace, and he would look for a way to have peace in his conscience, and, and most often what people had done is turn to empty pagan religion. And in these elementary pagan religions, like the Galatians were under before they came to faith in Christ, they would find emptiness. They would find their conscience continuing to convict them as God had placed the law in their minds. But also, the Jews were under the same kind of tutelage, under the same type of guardianship. They had received the elementary principles of the law. Now these things, as I began to look into this, God had used the law, specifically with the Jews. He'd enslaved them under the Mosaic law, and particularly the ceremonial law, and he did it 
For this reason, God used the law to progressively expand man's comprehension of the need for a Savior so that when he came in the fullness of time, man was ready to recognize him and understand his coming. So people weren't ready yet. They were still children. And so they were placed under the guardianship of the moral law and the ceremonial law so that they could grow up and mature and grow in their understanding so that they would be ready when the fullness of that law came. It's kind of like when we teach our kids to read. We don't place a great big book in front of them like the Bible and say, okay, now it's time to read. We start off, first of all, by teaching them letters. And they begin to learn to to recognize letters and to write letters. After a while, they begin to read words and, and then sentences and then whole books. And eventually, they can be mature enough and ready enough to read something like the Bible. They deal with the elementary principles first. And then, once they have been schooled in that, they are ready for the fullness. The same way in math. A math teacher would teach a child, when you begin to teach a child math, oftentimes they actually start with tangible objects. They would take something like an apple. And they say, okay, here's one apple and here's another apple. Now, what do we have when we have two apples together? And you go, one, two. After a while, those apples go from being tangible objects in their hand to apples on a page. And they begin to count apples on the page. After a while, those apples turn into numbers. After a while, those numbers turn into something less tangible yet, into to letters as we do algebra and get into calculus and those things. So the people are taught in that way. And so God had done the same thing with the people of Israel. These things, the ceremonial law and the law of God, were there for a specific purpose. But they weren't the fullness. They weren't the goal. That goal was the coming of Christ. And so God had taken the moral law and put it on people's conscience. What was the purpose of the moral law? Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the law was to teach people that they were sinners. The law of God put in the conscience of man, you and I and people throughout the Oceanside community, was to help them to know that they had sinned against the law of God so that they would seek peace with God in some way, and they would seek and ultimately know that there had to be some other way besides their own works and their own merit that they could be made at peace with God. And that when the the one who came, who offered that peace, that they would recognize him. Then what was the purpose of the ceremonial law, these circumcisions in days and months and weeks and seasons? These were, and I encourage you when you go home to read this, in Hebrews chapter 9 and 10, And I won't get into the fullness of reading that. We don't have time for that today. But to take a look at at what the Bible says about that, it uses words like these. These things were copies, they were types, and they were shadows of the fullness of the things that were to come. There were heavenly things of which these were copies. These were types of which the antitype would come. These were shadows into which we would see the fullness. And so circumcision was given to Abraham not to save him, But so that Abraham and his descendants, when they saw this physical thing that had happened to their bodies, this circumcision, they would be reminded that they were the people of God. But as they looked at that and remembered that they were the people of God and remembered all the commands that God had given them, they would recognize that even this external reminder could not transform their actions in the way that would lead to peace in their conscience with God. They would recognize there was a need for something deeper, 
that an external reminder in circumcision could not cleanse their conscience before God, could not make them right with God, could not make them desire to do the will of God. There needed to be, as we see later on in God's revelation, a circumcision of the heart. God had to come and radically transform their hearts to circumcise their hearts. This physical sign wasn't enough. There needed to be a greater reality. This was to point to them the fact that this wasn't enough and they needed something more. What about the sacrifices? As they sacrificed these lambs day after day and year after year, they could see in the sacrifice the need for a sacrifice, that somehow man needed to be cleansed from his sin and somehow there needed to be a sacrifice. Somehow the blood needed to be shed, that these lambs had to be unblemished male lambs or goats, And they could see something there that was pointing to a greater reality because every year as they made these sacrifices, they went away and recognized, though, that they were still guilty before God in their conscience, that these sacrifices couldn't take away their guilt. These sacrifices couldn't take away the fact that they weren't right with God. They were symbols of something to come. And they needed to put faith in the promise of God, not in the sacrifice. God had given them ceremonial washings. And as they washed themselves and washed themselves and washed themselves, they recognized that they weren't clean. That somehow through the promise of God, he had to make them clean with himself, that they couldn't cleanse themselves. God had given them priests. And as these priests continued to serve the people, they not only offered the sacrifices on behalf of the people, but they had to offer sacrifices on behalf of themselves. Because the priests, by the sacrifices, weren't made right. They were continuing to sin, and the people too. And so there was a need for a greater priest, a priest who would come and finally make one sacrifice, a sacrifice of himself, so that the people would not be cleansed for a moment and that God's the sin would be covered by this sacrifice, but the sin would be removed entirely. There was a need for one to come, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is what these things were pointing to. The tabernacle was a place where God was supposed to dwell among his people. It was a temporary shelter. But the tabernacle wasn't the end. No, God would come. God would come in the flesh. God would come and tabernacle among us. And this is what John was talking about in John 1 and verse 14. For the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle wasn't the end. It was pointing to a greater end. Same with the temple. It was a more permanent structure. But yet, would God's presence continue to dwell in the temple? Eventually, that temple was destroyed. This was the place that the people were supposed to worship and meet with God. Why was it destroyed? Because there was a greater temple to come. And that temple is sitting before me today, if you were in Christ. For in Ephesians chapter 2, it talks about how we are being built into a temple in which God would dwell by his Spirit. And Jesus promised that when he came to dwell within us, he would never leave us or forsake us. There was another temple coming. But these things were all pictures. They were earthly things pointing to a greater reality that would be fulfilled in Christ. Teaching this people, pointing to their need for a Savior, pointing for their need for salvation, pointing to the need for something beyond these symbols to bring the fullness of what was promised. 
And so we come to the words in Galatians 4.4. Some of the greatest words in the Bible. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. And when it says, when the fullness of time had come, number one, when the law had done its work. The moral law had convicted people over and over and over again. They realized that there was no way that they could be made right with God on their own. The ceremonial law had been there tutoring and educating the Jewish people, showing them symbols and signs of what was to come prior to Christ's coming. God was not here doing in sending Christ a random act of kindness. No, this was a sovereignly timed event. In Ephesians 1.11 it says, that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to him who works out all things according to the counsel of his will. And this morning we need to see that God does nothing by chance or accident. There is nothing going on in history today in which God in his sovereignty is not in control of, where God is not orchestrating his divine plan in the midst of the mess that we see before us. For God had not only used the law to prepare the way for Christ. But God had called forth a people, the Jewish nation, to whom he had given that law. And he had schooled them in that law. And even as he proclaimed that law to them, their disobedience to the law brought them under the curse of God, which he had also promised in the law. And they had been sent out of the land which God had promised to do if they had disobeyed. And the Babylonians and the Assyrians had taken the Jews and brought them into captivity. Maybe at that time to the Jews it seemed like God's plan was being thwarted, but it was actually being accomplished for you and for me. Because as those Jews were brought into captivity, some of them ended up coming back in the land, but many of them scattered throughout the nations. And so God was taking these people who he had tutored and guarded through the law, and, and they understood some of those things but didn't understand the fullness of them, and spreading them out throughout the nations in preparation for the coming of Christ. And we see later on in the book of Acts that after Christ had come, what happens? God used Pentecost, this feast, to bring together all Jews from different tribe, tongue, language, and nations in Acts chapter 2. And Peter preaches the first sermon and preaches the gospel to these people. And God opens their eyes. 5,000 people believe, all now understanding, being tutored all the way along as to what this fullness of Christ really meant. Had they not had that, their understanding would have been dim at best. They would have had to have been taught for years before they could have gone and proclaimed the gospel. God had prepared these people. And he prepared them to be missionaries to the nations. And he promised through Abraham that through him and his descendants, all nations would be blessed. And this is what God was doing in these Israelites. You notice, too, in the book of Acts, that as Paul and the other apostles begin to preach, the first place they went in almost every town they went was the synagogue. And that wasn't because they were still under the law of God and felt like they had to worship God in the synagogue, no. It was the ripest place for evangelism because these people had been prepared under the guardianship of the law to understand the fullness of Christ if God chose to reveal that to them. And so they went from synagogue to synagogue proclaiming the gospel throughout all of these places where God had scattered the people. But God not only prepared people through the law, not only prepared a people, but he actually prepared a language. And while Alexander the Great, before the coming of Christ, was out there conquering nations and kingdoms, calling himself Alexander the Great in his own pride, 
He was there for a specific purpose unbeknownst to him. That God, through his divine providence, was orchestrating the events of history so that as Alexander the Great was conquering these different peoples and nations, he brought with him the Greek culture and the Greek language. And God, in his divine sovereignty, chose the beauty and the fullness of the Greek language as the language that he desired to communicate the gospel and to have it written down. And even as the Greeks conquered Alexandria, there were over a million Jews in Alexandria at the time, these Jews then began the work of translating this Old Testament law into the Greek language as they began to know Greek and study Greek and were infiltrated with the Greek language and culture, and they translated what is known as the, the Greek Septuagint, and so that when the gospel began to spread, that this Bible, this Old Testament, would already be written down in the Greek language, ready to be spread throughout the nations. And once Alexander was done, over 75% of the people spoke Greek. That was no accident. It was the sovereign plan of God to spread the gospel. It was part of God's plan to spread that gospel to you and me. God not only prepared a language, but he prepared a government. And after the Greeks, he allowed the Romans to conquer. And they came through... And after the Romans had conquered much of the then-known world, they had what was known as the Roman peace, or the Pax Romana. The Romans began to build road systems. All of these nations began to, to be under this one government so people could travel from one place to the next, speaking a common language, under the guardianship of the Roman government. And the Romans, in their pride, thought that they were doing this on their own. But they were but a, a peace in the hand of God's sovereign providence as he was moving things around and orchestrating the events of history to prepare the way for the coming of Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Paul uses the word sent forth. In another place in John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his Son. God gave his Son in love, but he sent him forth on a mission. And that word sent forth, oftentimes the angels, the word angel is actually sent one of God. They were sent on a mission from God coming to the people. The apostles, actually, the word apostle is a sent one of God. You and I are sent into the world by God, but God first, before he could send us, had to send his son. He didn't send a man, although Christ came born of a woman, but he came, first of all, as the Son of God, who existed before time in all eternity. He was the sovereign Son of God, and he came born of a woman. This was his humanity. So we have the divinity of Christ, the Son of God, the humanity of Christ, two natures in one person, sent forth from the Father into the world. God not only orchestrated his birth, but throughout his life, Jesus was constantly under that sovereign providence and moving hand of God. You find him oftentimes throughout the gospel saying his time had not yet come. His brothers asked him to go up to Jerusalem. No, the time is not yet. People came to him and said that Herod is coming after you. He's going to kill you. Jesus said, no, 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 no. A prophet can't die outside of Jerusalem. My time is not yet. Even in his death, we read in Romans 5, 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. There is no randomness 
in God and his plan and his sovereign providence in sending his son. And Christ is going to come again. God is going to send forth his son again. For those who are in Christ, that will be the greatest day that we have ever experienced. For those who are outside of Christ, it will be the greatest terror. Jesus, when his disciples were asking him, when is that day going to be in Acts chapter 170? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus isn't going to come at a random time. It's already been fixed. In Titus and 1 Timothy, actually chapter 6, 13 to 15, it says, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. Christ is going to come again at exactly the time that God, from before the foundation of the world, had set for that time. Christ came. The Son of God was sent forth, born of a woman, says, born under the law. Christ was a Jew, born of a Jewish mother, born under the Jewish law. Jesus, when he was eight days old, was circumcised. Jesus, when he turned 12 years old, came to temple to the temple and went through the ritual of coming into manhood. Jesus was born under the law. But unlike any other man who had ever lived, Jesus perfectly obeyed the law. Not only did he obey the law, he fulfilled all of the types that the ceremonial law was pointing to. He himself said so much in Matthew chapter 5, 17. When Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, no, but to fulfill them. He was born under the law for what purpose? Well, it says next, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. But Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life in full obedience to the Father under the law, fulfilling all of the types that were pointing to Christ through the ceremonial law, died a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, so that those who, through the law of God, put on their conscience and the law of God and the written word of God, understood that they were sinners in need of a Savior, would come to faith in Christ and look to him only for their salvation. They would repent of their sin and believe in him. This word redemption, it speaks of one who has been bought from bondage. And how did Christ buy us out of bondage? How did he redeem us? Acts 20, verse 28, talks about us as the church that Christ obtained with his own blood. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Christ paid the ultimate price. And why? Finally, he says here, Born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Adoption is a costly thing today, even. 
If you want to adopt a child, there's much thought, there's much time, there's a great process that you have to go through, and most of the time in our culture today, much money that has to be paid in order to go through that process of adoption. Christ paid the greatest price. And why? So that you and I could be adopted into the family of God. Do you understand what we've been given? There's no gift under a tree that compares with this gift. There's no tree so beautiful as the tree at Calvary where Christ was crucified on your behalf and shed his blood so that you could be bought into the family of God. There's no light brighter than the light of Christ who came to shine in the darkness that we might have the fullness of God come into our life and and be saved through grace by faith. And there is no greater family that you could be adopted into. There is no greater inheritance that can be given. The book of Ephesians says that we have become heirs and co-heirs with Christ. That the God who gives life and breath and everything else to all people who owns the cattle on a thousand hills, who everything in all of history is his. It says, for from him and to him and through him are all things. This has become our Father in Christ. And the Bible says that he has given us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Is that what you think about all day long? When you get up in the morning, do you say, thank you, Jesus, I'm no longer under the bondage of the law. Thank you that I no longer have a guilty conscience. Thank you that I've been cleansed by the sacrifice of your blood. Thank you that God is now my Father. And instead of pouring out his wrath on me, he's giving me an inheritance forever in Christ. We were once slaves, and now we're sons. We were once children of the devil, and now we are children of God. We were once under the curse of the law, and now we are under the blessing promised to Abraham so long ago. God gives us all of this. Then in verse 6, he says he fills us with the Spirit, that we might have a passion and a desire once again to obey the law of God, And in verse 7, so that we could become sons of God, heirs and co-heirs with Christ. This is the most amazing thing. For those of you who are in Christ, do you spend time rejoicing in this and, and celebrating this and thanking God for this? Is this the focus of your life and your thoughts? Is this the kind of stuff that you want to tell your neighbors and friends about? For as God sent Christ into the world, so he sends us to proclaim the good news of the gospel? Are we going to keep this to ourselves? And for those of you here this morning who are still under the guardianship of the law, God's law is convicting your conscience. You sit there and you know that you're guilty. You pretend to everybody else that that's not the case. God knows your heart. But even now, after all this time of rebelling against him, 
If you would confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive your sin and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Do you want to pursue the wealth of the world? Or do you want to receive as a gift of God's grace and mercy his eternal inheritance? Are you going to spend the rest of your life enslaved to the elementary principles of this world, or are you going to receive the fullness of God in Christ? Even this morning, God will forgive you if you would but look to Christ. Even this morning, you could become a son of God, an heir and a co-heir with Christ. Don't wait. It's too great a gift to leave under the tree. Let's pray.